And I think it's time for leaders across the globe to, to stop, pause, whatever you want to call it for a moment, take a break and understand the role that these new objects are now playing in who we are as humans and how they impact our ability to function, you know, on a day-to-day basis. I think it's really big deal. From Goose Creek Consulting, welcome to the Silver Linings Handbook. I'm Jason Blair. That's Victoria Grady, an Associate Professor of Management and Academic Director of the Masters of Science in Management program at George Mason University School of Business. Victoria is an expert in organizational behavior as it relates to change. She has a doctorate in organizational behavior from George Washington University, and Victoria is also a professor in residence for healthcare, people, and change at Forbis. Victoria's studies on attachment theory relate to change in the workplace. Following in the footsteps of noted psychologists John Bowlby and Margaret Ainsworth, along with her father, James Grady, Victoria has conducted groundbreaking research into the impact of attachment styles in the workplace. Attachment, which relates to our relationships with our primary caregivers in childhood, has long been a cornerstone of the development of personality in clinical psychology. I've known Victoria for six years and believe she's one of the most insightful minds when it comes to workplace psychology and that her work expanding these concepts and ideas to the workplace has really been groundbreaking. Today, we're going to talk about how attachment styles can impact the way people relate to each other and to organizations, how attachment styles impact our relationships with leaders and as leaders, and how they can impact the fate of organizations. And looking at the whole person in the workplace, the neglected insights that clinical psychology can bring to the table. So I'm excited to have this conversation. You know, before we get started on a topic that totally fascinates me, I just wanted to ask a little bit about the underlying concept of attachment and how you as somebody who's a business professor got so interested in it, because it's not the typical thing you sort of uh, associate with business school professors. Thanks, Jason, so much for that really great introduction. I feel um, uh, we have known each other for quite a while, and when you always when you hear someone that you are friends with and colleagues with and have collaborated with, it's always funny to hear them talk about you like that. So thank you so much for the the comments. So it's really interesting how this all came about. So back in the late, uh, let's say 1997, 98 timeframe, I was working on my master's degree. And while I was working on my master's, I was teaching federal government employees how to migrate from um, Microsoft, I'm sorry, from Lotus, I don't know if you remember Lotus 123, the spreadsheet package. I do, I do. Yeah, to Microsoft Excel. So I would do training classes for the federal government around um, that change. And the thing that I noticed is that it was not always about the technology itself, 
that was the struggle for, for individuals in these different classes, but it was the change to their daily work task that the technology was going to bring about. And you might think, well, that's weird because I don't really think that those two programs were that different. And in some ways they weren't, but the premise behind the military integration of Excel was also that people who were um, using these new packages and, and doing this training were going to lose some of their admin support um, you know, as part of a reorganization. So there's a lot of different things going on under the surface for these folks. And it started being really interesting how obvious, how prevalent it was all the way from the admin assistant who had, you know, only been working a few years to the, um, I'm thinking of an individual in particular who was a brigadier general who was losing his staff assistant, right? So he's been in the military for, I don't know, 20 years, however long it takes to become a brigadier general. And he was losing his support because he was going to be using this new package. So it wasn't just Excel. They were also um, integrating um, Microsoft Word too to replace WordPerfect. So lots of change going on. And what I'm seeing is that it wasn't about the technology. It was more about the behavior change that was going to be required by the implementation. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it does. And it's an interesting point because when we think of change like technology, migration, we think about like, oh, where are the, where are the buttons now? Or how do I do this? But, you know, the point of any technological change is usually to change, at least in some aspect, the way that we're going to work. And then when we change the way that we work, we sort of change the things that, you know, so much of our routine and what we're connected to. So that makes complete sense. But it's not necessarily the first thing people will look for when they're thinking about that kind of change. Yeah, for sure. For sure not. I think it's one of those things, Jason, great point that people don't usually look for, but they should, right? That's a really important part of, um, you know, understanding any kind of change. It doesn't have to be technology. It could be business process. It could be office space. It could be, you know, moving from virtual back to a hybrid or, um, you know, whatever type of change you might be able to think of. There are underlying behavioral implications that need to be fleshed out every single time. Yeah, I think about when my workplace first started moving to like using digital books and it drove me mad because I was used to having in my office this giant bookshelf of things. And it was really weird. I felt like, oh, I'm going crazy. Why do I care about (laughs) this bookshelf of books? But I realized that it had to do with my habits, my perceptions of myself, what that shelf of books represented when everybody you know, walked in and they were able to see my interests. So it changed the way that I interacted with people. And you would think that like moving from paper books to digital books would just really be reading about my reading style, but it was really about much more than that, if that makes sense. Mm, Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. That's exactly what we're talking about, Jason. So how did um, how did you go from that, so that piqued your curiosity, to even thinking about it in the context of something like, you know, attachment? Because that's where a clinical psychologist might go, but mm-hmm. how did you get there? <laughs> so, so I um, moved to Germany after I finished my master's and lived over there and taught and, kind of, and saw a lot of the same behavioral characteristics for a, a couple of years 
um, associated with um, a military installation over there. Um, when I came back to the United States, I decided that I was going to go ahead and pursue a PhD. So I was sitting in a guy name, and I hope some of your listeners recognize this name, um, Professor Jerry Harvey from GW. He was a an OB professor, um, and he uh, founded or identified or wrote about something called the Abilene Paradox. And the basic essence of the Abilene Paradox, that's kind of his claim to fame, is that a lot of times groups go along with ideas or suggestions even when they really don't want to. Um, and it's kind of an interesting phenomenon, like going to a restaurant with a group of friends that you all go. And then when you finish, you're like, God, oh, that was so expensive. I didn't even want to come here in the first place. And you're like, wait, why didn't you say something? And it, you know, it happens. <laughs> I can in, definitely relate to that. Yeah, <laughs> right. It happens in the workplace too. And his kind of seminal work or a really profound work was with um, the Challenger accident, because there was a lot of documentation that, they, they, that many people recognized that the potential for a, a catastrophic event um, was very real and didn't say anything. And so there or if they did, they didn't say it loud enough or they didn't say it to the right people or, or you know, make sure that they were heard. So really interesting kind of looking back at how that evolved. Later, he wrote another book and the title is hysterical called How Come Every Time I Get Stabbed in the Back, my fingerprints are on the knife. So it's a uh. great book, a wonderful read. But in that book, he talks about something that um, Renee Spitz identified back in the, the um, uh, early 40s, early mid 40s called anaclytic depression. And basically the word anaclytic, um, anaclesis is Greek for to lean on. So a depression that comes about based on the removal of a leaned on object. Um, he studied it, uh, Renee Spitz did in children. And interestingly, John Bowlby picked up on the work that Renee Spitz began in the 40s, in the early 50s, and kind of took it forward to a place where when we talk about attachment behavior, anaclytic depression became attachment behavior. We don't even talk about Spitz's work. Right. We, we refer to it really as John Bowlby's work when it actually was, um, you know, began the, the work began a, a little bit earlier. But anyway, um, so he was talking about that um, in that book. It was just came up very briefly. And he mentioned he mentioned John Bowlby. And interestingly, I was sitting there listening and I looked at him and I said, so let me tell you about these technology changes that I've been part of and, and what I've seen both in the United States um, and in Germany, but also in other countries in Germany, because I was able to teach um, and do, you know, computer and software training and that kind of work while I was over there in, in countries aside from Germany. And I always saw the same thing. It didn't matter what country, what culture, we're watching the same behaviors occur. So I'm telling him in class about this and he's like, well, Victoria, I think you may have just found a really good dissertation topic. <laughs> so <laughs> that's that's how that started. So isn't that funny? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting about Bowlby. Like it, it always because I always like the biographies of um, some of the folks who are here. But I remember reading a story about you know I was just thinking about the points that you were making about noticing it in the military. But 
as I recall, I think it was World War One. Um, Bowlby's father was, uh, you know, doing his military service, and he only came home like once or twice a year. Really didn't have much contact with his, um, you know, his siblings. His mom occasionally got letters, um, but she didn't share her, share them with any of her children. And around the age of seven, as the story goes, I think Bowlby was. Um, Bowlby's parents decided to send him and one of his brothers off to prep school. And the goal was to protect them from the bombings during the attack and other things along those lines. And he wrote later in life that it was an absolute terrible time for him. And he made some comment like, I wouldn't send a dog to boarding school Mm. at that age. And, but it really got him thinking about that concept of, those underlying sort of a child's all important sort of ties mm-hmm. um, and the, the normal pattern and the normal ties that exist that help you feel safe in the world. So you sort of went through a similar journey in looking at your transformation and realizing that these little things that sometimes we think kind of like Bowlby's parents in the boarding school think might be all helpful um, kind of break these ties that, that people have is that kind of like the underlying idea of sort of attachment that crosses over or it it does. And Jason, I I would be remiss if I didn't also mention, you know, one other aspect of this that I found um, that kind of, it was like the perfect storm of, of um, events coming together. So in um, after I had been married for about a year, my um, then husband was diagnosed with, what would be what would end up being terminal cancer, and the interesting thing about that the the diagnosis that um, many of the, your listeners may have friends or family members who have had a um, a scary diagnosis is mm-hmm. you don't really think as much about the diagnosis, right? Or we didn't. We were just like, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna move forward, um, and we're gonna make this. We're we're gonna beat it, and it's you know we're we're gonna work through it. Somebody, yeah, we almost need to, we have a, a need for action in those moments. Yeah, exactly. And that's what you, we did. You're almost like a shark. If you're not moving in those moments, you're dying, I think. hundred percent. Well, during that, so interesting that you say that, somebody gave me a, a copy of a book called Who Moved My Cheese. Do you remember that book? I do. Uh-huh. It's actually on my bookshelf across from me. <laughs> so it was, the, it was Who Moved My Cheese, right? Combined with the personal loss of and of course it was there was a there's a lot of sadness around this but the one of the things that kept bringing up in my brain is wait 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 how did this happen I did I went to you know I did well in high school went to college you know got a master's degree I did all the things that I was supposed to do waited until I was old enough to make a good decision you know all that blah 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 how in the world is this happening to me? And that's why my friend sent me the book, Who Moved My Cheese. So I started Who Moved My Cheese, you know, your personal situation and then the workplace and how these, you know, these small changes are, are seemingly small changes like an introduction of a new technology. I mean, it rocks your world, right? Nice. And so it all started kind of coming together. And then when I heard Dr. Harvey talk about it, it from the chapter in his book, I knew, I mean, I was on fire at that point, to be perfectly honest. I knew that there was a lot to learn about this work and about how we as humans process through 
these types of change. Does that all make sense? Yeah, it's interesting you make that point because it, it just made me think that, you know, when I talk to friends or other people I know, or when I was a reporter and I would interview people mm-hmm. who had lost, uh, let's say, their spouse, mm-hmm. and I would ask questions like, um, well, what do you miss most? It was often something like, you know, I miss their smell or I miss mm-hmm. the way that they made this food or that they laid on their pillow or, mm-hmm. you know, the, the sound of their voice when they were singing in the shower, these things that you think you would think are relatively small in the grand scheme of things, but they yeah. represented for those people something so much bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, and I think that that, again, I think we are, we are staying too surface level when we're talking about change at any, in any capacity to not acknowledge those little nuances or little habits or little traditions or little, um, you know, expectations that are really important part of who we are as human beings. Could you sort of just sort of stepping back and thinking about the overall concept of attachment, what is the theory and what is it that happens and why is it so important to us you know, at at a young age and through our adulthood, you know, because for a long time, people thought that it didn't really persist beyond, you know, our young years. But mm-hmm. I think we found over time that it has lifelong implications. But could you just sort of share with us what the underlying ideas and concepts are and how how those sort of bonds and associations are created? I definitely will. And I know you have, are incredibly well read in this space as well. So I would Anything that I miss, please feel free <laughs> to jump in. But <laughs> the essence of attachment behavior um, is uh, grounded um, in our um, in in our instinct, right? It is um, you know a part of who we are. The moment that we um, and I'm quoting in the air air quotes, um, we get here. So the moment that you are born, or whoever gives birth to you um, in this world, your brain starts trying to understand the relationship that you now have born um, with the outside world, right? And so the- Yeah, because we're all inherently relational people, you know? Yeah. As much as an introvert, I like to deny it, that Mm -hmm. everything we see in the world is sort of based on our reflection, sort of in the eyes of other people or in comparison to other objects. Uh Uh-huh. So, so, but some, at some point, the research is pretty conclusive that it happens for the first time between zero and eight months. So at some point from the moment that you're born between that moment and eight months, your brain recognizes for the first time that you are um, independent from whoever gave birth to you. Right. And you're and it's at that moment that your brain chooses an object or your your you as a human choose an object to provide you with support now that you recognize that you're independent you attach to an object that object during that time could be a blanket it could be um, a nighttime bed routine it could be your mother and the way they smell or your caregiver and the way they smell it could be um, you know a little stuffed toy it could be the mobile that turns across you know turns around on your crib but there's some object that you form an attachment with 
that provides you with safety, security, support, whatever you want to call it. And it happens for the first time um, between zero and eight months. And then as you move forward, like you noted, many years ago, we, we, we the, the researchers, people that were, were interested in this topic of developmental psychology, were very convinced that it only impacted early childhood even. And then maybe it went a little further to, to um, later childhood. And then I think today, as we progress forward, we, we pretty openly recognize the role that attach, detach, and reattach to different objects as we move through the course of our lives probably never stops, right? So when yep. you're in middle school, it might be that you're attached to your friend group. When you're in college, you might be attached to your phone. By the time you get to the workplace, maybe you're attached to, um, you know, a lunch group that you spend time with or, um, you know, the, the technology that you access that allows you to remote in three days a week. So we are attached to different objects as we move through life but it never stops providing us with support mechanisms. Does that make sense? And oh, what yeah. And, and, and just in listening to what you're saying, I think one of the real challenges, you know, we attach to different objects for different reasons, is that I might be attached to a certain object, you might be attached to another one, and I may go in sort of with that presumption that, no one could possibly be attached to that object. Yeah. And then I decide to make a change there, and then I've moved your cheese. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's exactly right. Yes. Well, I was wondering about, just to give you some background about how I originally got interested in attachment theory. So I grew up in a very sort of engaged household, very engaged parents, not much anxiety, but they were really, really involved in my life. And I, you know, I feel like for the most part, it was a very good uh, childhood. And then, you know, as I grew up and I got into middle school and high school, I realized that that wasn't true for everyone. Yeah. And, you know, I came to sort of like, you know, look into it and research. And I realized that some people grew up in environments where their parents are very involved, but there's a lot of anxiety and they might become a little preoccupied. There are people who grew up in environments where, you know, there's anxiety, but parents are disengaged and in attachment, they might call it fearful avoidant. And then there are people who, you know, grew up in environments where there's not much anxiety and there might, uh, I feel like this is every skater dude I grew up with <laughs> and there, there might not be that much involvement and you can become very dismissive, but what you're saying, and just to make sure I have it right, then no matter which group, whether you're in secure attachment style or an insecure you still attach to some kind of object. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting, Jason, that you bring up attachment styles because I'll be honest with you. I don't think when I initially, like in that early 2000s, 2000 to 2005, I, when I defended my dissertation, that I really understood the implications of the style. I think it has only been, honestly, in the last five years that I have really begun to question the role of of understanding you know how important the attachment style really is in terms of um you know understanding people's behavior and how they um transition through different types of change and, and it's fascinating really 
that you bring that up because I think that it is, I think it is so much more important than I ever recognized um, in terms of understanding who an individual is. So it's, you're right. It's not just about attaching to objects. It's about attaching to the, the objects that give you that support. And for you, it might be one thing. For me, it might be totally different and that's okay. Right. And I can give you a a great clinical example. You know, a trendy thing is mindfulness right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, people talk about meditation and they talk about different approaches. But one of the great things about understanding someone's attachment style from a clinician, you can get an idea of what will work for someone. And someone with a very secure attachment style, a lower level of anxiety, they generally feel like they're loved. Like mindfulness and meditation can be wonderful. However, for a person who's a little bit more anxious, actually mindfulness can be counterproductive because that empty space just gets filled with anxiety. So at least on the clinical side, it has applications to, you know, personality, behavior, but also what the right interventions are for the person. If that oh my gosh, sense. Jason, that's so significant, right? And I think it's really hard um, as individuals working in the organizational change space to be able to understand all those nuances. You know that what you just said, if I were listening to you, I would feel like totally overwhelmed, right? As a, as a change agent or a change leader or a change manager inside of an organization or really even in a family. (laughs) I mean, just in my personal life too. I mean, it seems overwhelming that you have to think about so many different aspects of this really, really critical um, theory that is the bottom line. It's our instinct and there's nothing you can do for the most part. Now I'm, I'm quoting again in the air because there are, you and I both know there are a very, very small percentage of people who don't do this. And those folks are have their own challenges. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm going to leave those to the professional clinical folks. That's not right. <laughs> Send them my way. <laughs> yep, that's it. So, um, But one of the, to me, I think I, I get exactly what you're saying. I think we have a natural tendency to want to um, simplify. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's like self-help books. It would be really nice if somebody could create a book that would have, you know, 300 pages of help that applied to everyone. Mm-hmm. And I think you see that a lot in leadership development. You see a lot of that in organizational behavior. You know, Jack Welsh or whoever writes a book and that book is supposed to be, you know, your roadmap. But mm-hmm. I think people may underestimate how important understanding your organization or understanding your people are. You know, you and I both know there are a lot of popular change models, but I don't think necessarily everything in them applies to every situation. Is there, what's the advantage for organizations to sort of step back and look at those questions about what their specific organization is like? And, and then, you know, I, I, I neglected to ask the very obvious question, what got you thinking about attachment styles a little bit more and their importance? Mm-hmm. So uh, can I answer that one first? And then we'll yes, circle please. back <laughs> to the other one. It's so funny how this happened. So I was in, um, I guess it was winter of 2017. I was sitting at my desk and my phone rang and it was a UK number because I know that because my cousin lives in the UK. So it had the 49 number, um, you know, area code. Yeah. 
so I knew it was from the UK and I thought, oh my gosh, my cousin must be in trouble or <laughs> something, somebody's pregnant or, you know, something exciting's happening or whatever, you know, he's married and all that good stuff. So I thought it didn't think it being anything other than that. So I answered the phone and it was not my cousin. It was a gentleman who had just completed something called ProSA, um, which is uh, the ad car model. You mentioned, you know, all different, there's so many different kinds of change models, but this, he had just done that work and he had, um, with the, the individual who was doing that training had mentioned a book that my dad and I wrote called The Pivot Point. And he called me out of the blue and said, I just finished the training for ad car, ProSA model. I love it. They mentioned your, your book, The Pivot Point. And I think you missed something. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> you mean you weren't like uh, the typical academic and said impossible? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just like, wait, what, what are you talking about? I missed something. And he's like, well, there is not a word in your 2012 published pivot point about attachment style. And I say 2012 because... In the 2020, um, you know, updated version, we definitely mentioned attachment style because he was right, Jason. We totally missed, um, you know, in the initial work, the significance of attachment styles. And, and the reason that that's so important to the organization is understanding the attachment styles tells you more about which one of those models you mentioned might be a better fit for your organization. So it takes some of the guesswork out of looking at your organization, looking at your department, your division, whatever, and saying, okay, I've got these individuals that need, you know, this type of support. So this change model might be the best fit for them. And and you're right. There are hundreds of change models and theories out there. And I'm a big believer, just like you, that, you know, you can't just pull one off the shelf and say, oh, this will work because you don't know. And personality plays a role in this. And I think there's a connection. Um, you and I've talked about this before between personality and attachment style. And so personality is an important factor when you're choosing what change model. Do you need specific steps or do you need a, gen, you know, a, a general vision? Um, yep. how to, what's the best way to move forward inside your organization? So yeah, I mean, so really spot on this um, suggestion from my um, from my colleague. His name is Ian Noakes. So shout out to Ian for being willing to call me out and say, I think that you need to look at this and know the role that um, that it that it, it's playing. So does that make yeah. sense? No, absolutely, and it makes it more powerful and more customized and more. You know, instead of sitting in that, like this generic sort of uh, self-help model, it really lets the organizations, uh, if they take the time and are willing to make the effort, really tailor their response. Sort of shifting to another topic. I remember, you know, like we talked about, we've worked together for a while, but I remember reading an article that you wrote for Harvard Business Review back in 2021 in the middle of the pandemic. And mm. it was focused on three tools to help leaders study their teams during transition. You know, it struck me at a time when so many people were struggling with force change, right? We talked about this idea of these change models. You're usually transforming a business or making a change and you get a chance to plan it. But during that time, we were all dealing with 
forced transitions to remote work, mm-hmm. changing our daily habits from the way that we shopped, the way that we spent time with our loved ones, or, you know, I had what three Thanksgiving or two Thanksgivings on zoom and two Christmases oh, on um, zoom. I, you know, it struck me that so many people were struggling with that forced change during the pandemic. And I'm wondering if we learned anything during that time about change and organizational change, because, you know, the downside is we were all pushed through change quite Mm -hmm. rapidly. The upside though, is probably we could have, we may have learned a lot during that period. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. I mean, I think, I mean, I think we, I definitely do think we learned a lot. I mean, I, I don't think the world we exist in, in any capacity is the same as it was in December or, or January of 2020. You know, I don't think, I think we're, we're materially different now. I think that's a great point. And that article, um, that the kind of the inspiration for that article was the early days of the pandemic, watching people inadvertently gravitate towards something called transitional objects. So in this space around attachment theory, there are several different really important components to the theory. And attachment styles are one of them, one facet of the bigger picture theory. But transitional objects in something called transitional space are another really important component. And that HBR article from 2021 was really focused on recognizing that we're, whether you know what it is or not, whether you've ever even heard the word transitional object, most of us were gravitating towards those objects for- um, Is that like uh, everybody who bought a dog and uh, started repairing their house? And I know for me what it was, I was never much of a big walker, but all of a sudden I started walking like five to six miles a day. And once we came back to the office- I had the hardest time letting go of that. So mm-hmm. technically I haven't. I sort of gotten up. I get up at 5 a.m. now. But that's good. I mean, what a great habit that's become, right? But for so many reasons, I'm sure. So people were inadvertently sort of attaching to those things. That's interesting. So more rapidly shifting their attachments, more rapidly mm-hmm. um, adjusting. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that's a part of our sort of resilience or... I do think it's part of our resilience. I do. I absolutely do. And I think that, um, but it's, I think it's important to help people understand what it is. And that was really the reason for the article, right? To understand that it can be different for everybody. So I think Zoom became a transitional object of sorts that fits under the the area in the article where we talk about building a bridge, right? We didn't have an option except to figure out how to communicate with our coworkers from our homes, right? We had to do this. Now, we've had Skype has been around for a long time, but it wasn't, Skype never really worked very well, at least for me. Maybe that says something about my technology. I don't think anyone. (laughs) (laughs) But there there were definitely platforms out there but it didn't do what we needed it to do. And Zoom really did, right? It, it was at least the, the best option for many of us as we tried to keep our you know, day-to-day work life um, as intact as possible. Same thing for our kids, right? I mean, how are our children going to go to school? And so 
We use Zoom. So technology can be a transitional object of sorts when it provides you with a support mechanism or a connection. And we call it in the article, building a bridge between what you had and what you've got now, right? And so Zoom was that bridge to what we had and how are we going to do this now? How are we going to still work? How are we going to still keep our children in school? And that support um, you know, helped many of us survive. During that That's time. so interesting and so fascinating to me because listening to you say that, I didn't even think about this idea that as so many sort of leaders are thinking about p- bringing people um, back to the office and there's so much resistance to the yeah. idea. I never thought about the idea that we picked up objects, whether it's Zoom or my walk or the dog mm-hmm. that you get to spend all day with, mm-hmm. um, that provided us comfort during the pandemic And now not only are leaders asking us to, quote unquote, return to normal, that that, that normal they're asking us to return to doesn't exist anymore because our comfort comes from completely different places. Yep. And I think it's time for leaders across the globe to, to stop, pause, whatever you want to call it for a moment, take a break and understand the role that these new objects are now playing in who we are as humans and how they impact our ability to function, you know, on a day-to-day basis. I think it's really big deal. Yeah. You hear those stories about how people have returned to the office and everybody is communicating with each other in the office on Microsoft's teams. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I, I don't think we've all become introverts, but I think there might be some elements of comfort that come from some of those things that we may be missing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I absolutely think, and we were missing them when we got sent home, <laughs> right? Right. And, that, yep. and then we had to figure out how to reassimilate and accommodate all those changes and the things that we we're missing. And now we are, you know, kind of, let's see, I guess we are, how many months in are we? So it was, from March is, tw- so that is 34 months in, <laughs> 34 months in, you're, a lot of organizations are asking us to let go of the things that provided us with support and we're, and individuals across the world are fighting back pretty ferociously. Kind of, yeah. It's kind of like the pandemic stole our security blanket. We yeah. One, and now our bosses are trying to steal that one from us. <laughs> yeah. That's funny, Jason. We might could write an article about that. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Or or I'm in. How about that? Yeah. Um, okay. So one of the things that since we were on the pandemic, I wanted to ask you about, you know, lots of articles, lots of experiences, both uh, for me on the clinical side and in the workplace lately with burnout, post-COVID burnout. Mm-hmm. But there feels, and burnout's been a topic I've addressed for years and years, but there feels like there's something different. Is there, in your mind, something different about what we're experiencing right now? And you know, does it relate to some of these things? Jason, I think it does. And I think that's a really insightful question on your part. I have been able to spend a decent amount of time over the course of the last two years in researching and trying to better understand the role of burnout in healthcare organizations specifically. And as I have learned more about burnout in healthcare, 
especially as we are coming out of the pandemic and we are looking at the results of um, the the incredible chaos that ensued for so many of us, you know, not the least of which is the healthcare industry. Um, but it is really interesting that I think that burnout looks different than we think. And the reason I think this is important is because I'm still hearing organizations talk about doing the same old things to relieve burnout. And we've changed. Everything's changed. And the same old way that we managed and supported burnout in a pre-COVID world doesn't exist anymore. And the pace of burnout is exponentially, in my opinion, more significant now. I'm so curious, like even outside of healthcare, that you know what it looks like because my feeling is it's going to be a very similar result to what we've seen inside any thoughts about that yeah i mean i think that uh, at least on you know my experience and watching uh the pandemic at least for my chair and the aftermath of it is that there's probably even a greater need and I think, you know, and I think workplace trends were headed this way, at least toward thinking about these topics like burnout and other related r- related aspects of sort of employee well-being. But I think that there's even a broader need right now not to just look at well-being, but also look at well-being and fulfillment and connection yeah. and belonging an assortment of other things that are being, uh, that have sort of been tethered that are contributing to burnout. Because one of the, you know, just anecdotally from my experience has been that there used to be a pretty easy path to pull somebody back from burnout, you know, mm-hmm. get some yeah. step back mm-hmm. X, Y, or Z, but that path is not working anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and not working anymore as well as it used to. Or organizations are not focusing on it, or something is happening that's not uh, uh, leading to people bouncing back as quickly as they once did. You know, does that make I, sense? It does make sense, Jason. Um, let me share with you one bit of research that I ran across. It's been about a year. So the Yale, I'm, I think I'm calling it right. Let me qualify this. Emotional Research Laboratory, I think is what it's called, did an incredible study a couple of years ago about burnout. No, I'm sorry, about engaged employees, a phenomenon that they were seeing in engaged employees that related to burnout. And here's what it is. When you do an engagement survey, you look at your scores and you're like, oh, we're good to go. We're very engaged. We're fine. No problems. And so the leadership then just put it in the drawer and shut it, right? And nothing is done. Outside of the fact that many employee engagement surveys don't actually measure engagement. but (laughs) Well, there's that. You and I as researchers or people interested in research can go out anyway down that path for a long time. We drive them crazy, but yes. But let's say, presumably, that the instrument does do what it says it does, and it measures engagement. What they were seeing is that the most engaged employees inside of the organizations they were working with were also the most burned out. So translate that. Your highest performers are the most engaged, but they're also the most burned out. Isn't that crazy? 
Oh, wow. And that's something that would be a great threat to organizations. Oh, my gosh. Right. Think about it. Think about hospitals. You're high performing nurses and you're high performing doctors. And I mean, if those and, and then think about it in the context of just uh, like even at a car dealership, Jason, what's your your highest performers, most engaged or the most burned out? They're the ones who are going to leave. Think about the cost of that to, you know, the well-being of the organization, but also just to be blunt, the bottom line, right? Yep. 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 I, um, I, last year, last summer, I was, uh, at a conference and, you know, it, it was actually related to personality psychology and personality in the workplace. And, you know, I have a clinical background, so I'm forever bringing up, uh, clinical concepts like attachment. And I brought up, um, uh, Bowlby and also um, Mary Ainsworth and Mary Ainsworth, you know, she, she wrote a book uh, or actually when she was really young, she read a book uh, that I think William McDonald, uh, who was it? William McDowell wrote, I think it's the character and conduct of life. And, you know, that really got her thinking about psychology and personality psychology. And she's the one if anyone's ever heard of it, but she's the one who identified through this assessment called the strange situation, mm-hmm. you know, uh, this concept of, she identified three different attachment styles. And in those situations, you know, young children, you know, they interacted with a caregiver and the caregiver changed their level of engagement. And it really changed the way they, um, responded. And if you've ever, I, I, I always tell people any new parent should watch some of these strange situation videos, mm. because you could see, you know, uh, the parent would really engage with uh, the, the child and the child would be laughing and joking and, you know, playing and smiling. And then when the parent pulled away and stopped reacting, you know, at first the, the child would continue to sort of play and engage. And when the, that didn't work, like maybe toss something. And if that didn't work, then cry and disconnect. But it was like, you know, uh, in the underlying concept there was that the way that we interact with our primary caregivers, the way they interact with us really shapes our um, attachment style. So I brought this point up in the context of personality. How does it shape personality? Leading personality psychologist, uh, Bob Hogan, was speaking and he said, he, he, he literally went on for three minutes about how Bowlby should have uh, mm-hmm. received the Nobel Prize. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, one of the things that I've noticed, both in the space of working in leadership development, working in, um, you know, workplace team development, is often these concepts like attachment or even the concept of personality and its impact, leaders in many workplaces sort of like want to jump under a table if, if we bring up these concepts and our ideas. Yeah. Um, what do you think causes that resistance? And is, is there a way to sort of get around it, whether it's language or something else along those lines? I definitely think that there, there needs to be a way to get around it. Jason, I think that's one of the trickiest parts about sharing the science around attachment theory as it relates to organizational behavior and workplace, you know, the, the successful integration of change in the workplace is the really tough job of trying to talk with people about 
theories that are on the surface have nothing to do with, you know, the workplace or the organization's behavior or even an adult's behavior in some cases because it's grounded in developmental psychology literature. I mean, I found myself trying to avoid even acknowledging my interest in psychology um, <laughs> as, as a factor in, you know, giving a presentation because I'll be so, you can see the looks on the, the faces of the people in the audience be like, I'm done. <laughs> I've had no such luck myself. But, it's so hard. I get exactly what you mean. I mean, I often have to begin the conversations talking about behaviors, uh, you know, talking about competencies or experiences. And then I have to go backwards and say, well, where do you think those come from? It's like, mm-hmm. what makes it easy? What makes it hard? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I find myself having to go in the side door often. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that was one of the biggest misses of Who Moved My Cheese, to be perfectly honest with you, is that nowhere in Spencer Johnson's work does he recognize, acknowledge, mention nothing. That what he's really talking about is grounded in science. This isn't a fun pop culture book. This is serious stuff, right? This is human instinct that really doesn't, can't be changed. It is what it is, right? It's most of us, as I alluded to before, have the ability to attach. And that's a good thing. And we should embrace that, not push it away. Yeah. And I think that's one of the core pieces. You know, I run into this in my personality psychology work, you know, where people say, well, how do I change my personality? And I say, well, you don't really. Like, <laughs> it gives you self-awareness, kind of alluding to what you are saying about objects, it's really important to know what you're attaching to and why you're attaching to it. It gives you self-awareness and it gives you a roadmap to change your behaviors. Like taking a person like me, I, I enjoy risk. I love risk. I am, you know, I test like the evil Knievel, the guy who's gonna, you know, go parasailing Mm -hmm. and then, you know, (laughs) you know, jump out of a plane afterwards. Mm -hmm. Um, But not everyone is that comfortable with risk. A lot of people are more risk averse. So it just logically, and thinking about something like personality or attachment, or even taking it to something else like values, uh, mm. you know, an altruist versus somebody who's more focused on self-reliance. Like all of us are going to be able to accomplish the same goal. It's just gonna take different paths and be a different kind of struggle. And so I I sort of see like understanding these underlying concepts about attachment being about individuals being Mm self-aware, organizations having self-awareness about their own organization, because Mm -hmm. without that, how do you reasonably draw a roadmap to changing behaviors or even meeting strategic objectives? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree with you. I mean, I think this is one of those fundamental theories that should be in every single organizational behavior book out there. It should be a a critical part, just like teams and groupthink and leadership theory. I mean, I think it's it's a missing critical part of the literature that, I mean, I think it needs to be addressed. But the problem is you have the challenge 
of the language barrier. And that language barrier is, you know, something that is just quite frankly tough to overcome. Like, what are we going to do? We got to figure this out. We got to make this work. We've got to integrate this as a fundamental part of how all people learn to, to work inside of an organization. I think it's a big challenge, Jason. It's interesting because that actually brings me to uh, another point. The um, I remember in some of your latest work and some of your research, you know, on your last assessment tool, I mentioned before I test squarely sort of in the secure attachment site type, um, which I didn't find really offered me all that much other than maybe it gave me a little insight about how to relate to people who had other attachment styles. But one of the fascinating things about some of your latest research is that you suggested that there were some subtypes to secure attachment. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you about that. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, what kinds of names do you use now to describe these different styles that sort of work for the workplace? Mm -hmm. Well, it's such a good question, Jason. I mean, um, you know, we're, we're, I will, let me caveat what I'm about to say with, it's a work in progress, right? This okay. is brand new research that is literally, um, you know, headed to press, hopefully in the next, in the next couple of months. So it is, it's, it's really interesting how, um, how different, and I'm, I don't know if it's only secure that there are different um, subtypes, but that's what we've started. We started with secure. So the literature is pretty conclusive that somewhere between 52% and 58% of the general population, general global population type out in the secure range. But if you, so you and I maybe both type out in the secure range, but you, Jason Blair, would have a substantively different manifestation of secure than I do. I mean, it's right. we're, we're totally different in terms right. of how we test. I know you took the assessment. I know where you landed. And I landed as far away from where you were, but in the secure block. I think mine was impatient, right? Yeah, it was. So, so in, I think my whole family agrees. <laughs> but you know that it's impatience not a bad thing it's a no. get it done you know move out we're gonna make a decision and we're gonna make it happen and we're gonna you know get on it versus me I'm a little bit more deliberate I'm like okay whoa 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 this is a great idea but let's look at all the different things that could go wrong before mm -hmm. we move out on this. Let's, let's make sure we are, we've got a solid understanding of the pros and the cons. So I test type out as something called deliberate. So that's a bit more cautious. Cautious. Right. Yeah. I'm still yeah. secure, but I'm very deliberate in the way okay, that so I'm a little more less reckless. <laughs> well, I didn't say it, you did. <laughs> uh, but and, and, then, and then in the middle there, Jason, of of impatient and deliberate is a is a category that we call dynamic, right? And that dynamic person is kind of a mixture of the two, right? And it's it's really interesting the way our analysis and we did some fantastic statistical analysis around a concept called clustering. And data when you have a good enough sample size will give you some fantastic insight about um, subtypes uh, in a 
in a space like what we're talking about based on an analysis called clustering, where you see what what responses cluster and, and tend towards each other. And we found a very good cluster um, that is divided around three different areas insecure, really solid three areas that are, they are distinctly different is mm. the base of how I would describe it. The, no, and again, with all kinds of attachment styles, there's not one that's bad or, or good, right? Really, right? They just are. Um, and, and they each have some interesting facets to them, um, especially as you look at their role in, um, you know, change and transition. But I think it's really interesting to consider that we've been saying we had three or four attachment styles, depending on who, which piece of literature you, you believe to be most correct um, for, for 40 years. And the reality is, Jason, I think for sure we have at least six and there may be more. So yep. I think we're at a really cool space right now. Yeah. And I think that there's a real strong argument to, to that when I sort of take the corollary over to, you know, attachment obviously plays a role in the development of personality. And when you look at personality psychology and the way that it's grown, whether you're looking at something like clinical mental health disorders, or you're looking at, you know, what what you would call less persistent uh, personality-related tendencies, one of the things that's been clear is that we all operate on a sort of spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not yeah. the complete absence of a tendency versus the completely having the tendency, it's that if you imagine all these different personality characteristics, we all operate on a spectrum that leads to a certain place. And I think, I think it, it, again, it adds the complexity, but the beauty of the added complexity is gives you an opportunity to tailor um, the response or the yeah or the interventions that you do. You know, I, I was thinking, I was laughing as you were you were saying that we're both in secure attachment, but we're very very different. You know, I one of my biggest challenges in terms of change that I thought the the assessment was spot on about is that one of my real blind spots is that I can totally underestimate barriers or yeah. challenges to to change. It's an absolute blind spot. But then when I was looking at the results, you know, and looking at the other secure styles there were people within those other secure t- styles that would be such, so different from me mm-hmm. in terms of their um, their change leadership style that to not differentiate would almost make that secure box less valuable to understand. If that oh my gosh, 100%, 100%. The other thing, yes, 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 I totally agree with you. I, th- I think there isn't a lot of value to be perfectly honest, or it's minimal value, that's probably more appropriate, minimal value in just knowing that you're secure. Because I think there's so many facets to it. And it may be that we have only cracked or scratched the surface. I think three is fairly solid, but it may be that I'm wrong, Jason, and that it's it's four. You know, it could be more or it could be two. I mean, the data really, really, the cluster analysis gave us some good indications and the result was basically you need to even get more data. We had, I think, 388 um, participants. So we had a good sample wow. population. We have so far to go. This is research, right? It's it's an, it's an evolving process. 
So yeah, no, that makes that makes complete sense. I I remember when we first started working together, we were working with a client that was moving its headquarters mm. um, for the for the first time in many years, and they had done a headquarters move before, you know, decades and decades before, and people still talked about the old building the previous building that existed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, and we were sitting down, we had met with, you know, like the people who were leading the effort. We had met with the people in charge of public affairs. We had met with the HR people. And finally we met with like the building guy, like the mm-hmm. construction, internal real estate and construction guy. <laughs> and he was the first one to sort of mention, we really should have started change management like three years ago. Yeah. So, so I'm curious, from your perspective, when should, when there's a big change happening or just change in general, when do, I, I imagine with change in general, organizations need to be constantly thinking about change, but when there's a big transformation or a big change, when does, when does thinking about how the organization's employees might respond to that change, when does that need to start? Does it need to be a part of the beginning? I think it absolutely does. You know, Jason, that's such a good question. And I was given a lecture in Las Vegas in 2016. And somebody asked me, it was at an IT conference. And someone said, you know, we just don't have the budget in our IT um, rollout to, to manage the change to, you know, to, for, for change management. And I, and I looked at the individual and I was like, that's really interesting because from my perspective, um, you know, it's going to cost you a significantly higher price tag to not manage it than it would be to proactively manage it. So, I mean, you're saying you don't have the budget and yet you're picking the option that's going to cost you the most. And that's not proactively managing and understanding your people. I mean, I think it's a critical facet that needs to be built in from the very beginning. And it's an interesting point to that got me thinking, not only does it need to be a critical factor that is built in early in, it should probably be a part of the underlying thinking about whether there should be a change, right? Because resistance to change can make the benefits of a change more costly, but you probably want to make changes with the styles and approaches of your, and psychology and other aspects of your workforce or even your anticipated workforce in mind. You know, we, we had mentioned different uh, change models and we mentioned ADCAR. And, you know, for those who don't know, it's got these principles to it, you know, like awareness, desire, uh, you know, disseminating knowledge, right? Like, um, you know, reinforcing, and I think I'm missing one of them. But I was gonna, I, I know you and I have spent a lot of time talking about like the importance of desire to change. Could you talk a little bit about what's meant by desire and how important it is to change? I think that's interesting. And, and desire is a critical part of many, many change me- methodologies. Now, you know, it's, uh, it's overtly part of ADCAR awareness, desire, right? So desire is the word um, for the D in ADCAR. Um, so it's it's overt in that one. But I think if you look at other change uh, change methods, you're going to see the, the component um, or the, the, the importance of the concept around desire present um, in almost all of them. 
I think desire is helping people understand the reason why this is necessary. And, you know, that when I say the word why every time I, I shudder because that my Southern accent is just so <laughs> obvious. I love it. <laughs> when I say that. Um, but it's anyway. So it is, I think that. I haven't this, had a good conversation if I can't get a y'all in. Yeah, I know. I hear you. So, <laughs> or fix it. So, so um, anyway, so I think it's a desire is an important part of helping people impacted by the change embrace the why. This is why we're doing it. This is why it's important. This is how it's going to take you forward. I mean, it's all those messages that get buried underneath the concept of desire and people being willing to embrace, um, you know, how the change is going to impact them and move forward. And I think that is directly tied back to an individual's willingness to, to be unattached for a moment, right? Or to seek that transitional object to give you in, intermediary support while you get used to the new way of doing things. Does that make sense, Jason? Yeah, sort of that idea that understanding is the beginning of sort of building enthusiasm yeah. and also understanding helps you feel safe and helps you address your fears. Like one of the things um, Amy Edmondson, a Harvard Business uh, School professor, talks about the idea of psychological safety. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that people often miss in her theory is that the thing that drives psychological safety is candor. Knowing where you stand, knowing what the impact of things are, just knowing can create an enormous amount of psychological safety. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, you're exactly right. I totally agree. We were just talking about Amy Edmondson earlier. I, you know, I think she's done some great work in this space. Yeah, you know, I'm totally. You know, I'm totally excited about your work, and I'm totally excited about the places where clinical and workplace psychology can come together. Because you know, the whole point of clinical psychology is to improve the lives of people. You know, uh, social psychology to improve. You know, our collective. And so we spend no more time in a year (laughs) sleeping and at work. So I think it's super important for the well-being of people, from my perspective, that there's an opportunity to integrate these ideas. But I also think for organizations to really be effective, they have to sort of take in mind these central things. So I'm totally excited about that. So, but I'm curious if you're willing to tell us, if you're willing to tell the audience, where's your research headed next? You know, Jason, that's such a good question. I really think that we have so much more to do um, in the attachment style space. Um, One of the things that has come out of the work that we've been doing now for almost two years in this space is what I call um, like unintentional findings. And I'll tell you the, you know, sub dimensions in secure was one of those. Another one that came up is a question around primary versus secondary um, attachment styles and whether or not we, you know, we have a primary that's our default. And then, you know, if there's a secondary that kind of gets put into place and what that might look like in terms of, Um, you know, coaching leaders, you know, to understand more about how their individuals are attached, which brings me to the last area that was kind of identified is 
one of there is a uh, there are several articles and we have our literature review is truly global in terms of what we have reviewed in the attachment literature space for this this new article but there is some really really interesting um work um, coming out of South Africa around leadership and attachment styles and you know the way a leader why the attachment styles of leaders is a really important part of their own understanding of, of what's going on inside um, their organization. So I just think it's important um, to keep moving and down this path to dig into the attachment style work um, more. And I think that's, we're all in agreement. My research team, um, my dad, um, James Grady, who is a, a very important part of my research team, we're all on the same page to, um, to, to move forward with really digging into attachment styles and seeing what else we can come up with. Who knows, Jason, personality, you and I have talked about that before. <laughs> That's a factor in there. So lots it's of- It's very interesting you mentioned that, Victoria, if I could throw four cents over for you. One of the most fascinating things about personality is that, um, and leadership is that everybody has an everyday sort of leadership style or everyday personality. But we have very different personality styles when we're under stress or not yep. paying attention and not basically not self-monitoring. And who do you not self-monitor with? Your subordinates, your children, your goldfish, anything you have power over. Mm-hmm. So there may be something really there to that dominant secondary and what mm-hmm. may trigger those things. I want to do, I know we need to wrap up, but I wanted to give you a chance to see if you have any closing remarks or things that you want to say. I just want to tell you how, how much I appreciate the conversation. You know, I appreciate our collaborative, um, our collaborative relationship, doing work together. And if you know, if you, um, if any of your listeners have any um, questions or um, would like to interact um, at all, that it's a it's a quick Google search, and my uh, George Mason email pops up straight away. And I would love to to um, you know have a dialogue around what, what we're doing. Awesome. Thanks, Victoria. I really appreciate you for joining us. And thank you, all the listeners, for joining us for this conversation with Victoria Grady. We're looking forward to, A, having her back, and B, being with you guys again on the next episode. I'm Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. We'll see you next week with a new episode.